Our New Testament reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and then chapter 5, 12b. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethanthia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, over the last few weeks, we've... um As we finished up John's gospel, we've been watching um, Peter, and we've seen seen Peter, this disciple of Jesus, this follower of Jesus, um, we've seen him fail um, pretty miserably, Um, we've seen him deny Jesus, and we've seen him be restored on that beach by the risen Jesus um, so graciously and mercifully that Jesus restores Peter and then tells Peter, um, three times to go and tend and to feed his sheep. It's like, you've been restored, now go out. And then last week we, we heard from Peter. We heard right at Pentecost that Peter is the one who stood up and, and preached. And by the Spirit, 3,000 people um, were added to the church that day. And so for the next couple months, we're going to sort of follow um, Peter as we listen to his, his first letter that he wrote to the church. And it's good to have this background of who this man was. We'll talk a little bit more about him um, this morning. But because Peter's writing to this church as one who has experienced all of that that we've just seen. And he's teaching the church, what does it look like to live in the world? It's a big question. Um, What does it look like for the church to be the church, to be the people of God, Um, in the midst of a world, and especially in the world he was dealing with, a world that was very opposed to the church, um, was persecuting these new Christians. What does Peter have to say to him? Let's let's think about that this morning, but let me pray first. Father, we um, give you thanks this morning for, for these words that you have preserved for us that are inspired by your Spirit. Um, We thank you that they are given to us this morning, your church. We thank you for the ways in which you have preserved your church um, through the midst of its own wanderings and its own sin, and that you have promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we pray this morning, we long um, for your church to bear witness of you and your love, your forgiveness in the midst of our own culture. And so we pray that um, as we think about how to do that, that we would turn to you and we would turn to your word and that we would be open um, to learning, that you would change us and mold us and shape us, conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Um, Have you ever been in in a context, I mean, I know you probably have, you've been in a context before where you just felt like a complete outsider. Um, You felt 
Like, you kind of looked around, and you were like, I feel like an alien here. I'm sure all of us, uh, we experienced that. Uh, maybe we experienced that. Maybe you experienced that this morning um, when you came into church, and it's new to you. Um, as I was thinking about this, this concept of, of being kind of an outsider or being alien or feeling like an exile, um, the first thing that came into my mind, with apologies to the middle schoolers in the room, was being in middle school. Um, if for me, at least, being in middle school, it may be great. Um, it may have been a great experience for some of you, but in the school that I went to, elementary school went through sixth grade, and then in seventh grade, you switched campuses. And you know what it's like. You're in sixth grade, and you're sort of the king of the school. Like, you've made it all the way to sixth grade. Everyone, there's no one above you. Everyone is underneath you. Um, you kind of rule the place, and that's at least how I felt. And then I went into seventh grade, and the campus that I went to, it was seventh through twelfth. And so immediately you get there, and everyone is bigger than you. Everyone is older than you. The system is different. Um, you change classes. Bells would ring. I remember showing up and sitting down, and as the teacher started talking, I realized I was in the wrong class, like, multiple times. And then you go in the hallways, and it's like a scene from an 80s movie. There's, like, all these big dudes leaning against the locker, and I'm, like, tiny and afraid. And you know that feeling when you feel like an outsider or you feel alienated that one of the first things that we, we do is that we start to get kind of defensive. We kind of start to, we want to assert um, our authority. We want, you know, if, to take my illustration, I'm like, do you know who I was back in sixth grade, right? Um, it's, when we're outsiders or when we feel alienated, there's, we, we look for something to root our identity in. We want to assert our identity. And, you know, for those of you who are a little older in the room that you know that middle school does not end in middle school, it's just, a, it's just a glimpse, sadly enough, it's just a glimpse of the way that the rest of the world often works and what it often feels like when we feel scattered and we feel alienated and we feel exiled. Where we choose to place our identity has an incredible impact on how we interact with the world around us. Let me say that again. Where, when we feel scattered or alienated or opposed or persecuted, where we choose to place our identity has a major impact on how we interact with the world around us. Why do I talk about that this morning? Because Peter says in these first few verses, his introduction to this letter, um, he calls the people that he's writing to exiles. He calls them elect exiles. Um, if you go to other translations, you, you might see the word strangers, or um, one translation calls them resident aliens. So where they reside, they are aliens. And, and what does he mean? He means that they're now citizens of a new kingdom, that they're now citizens of a new family, that they now have a new identity, and yet they still reside in a land where they are going to feel foreign, and they're going to feel exiled. And they're going to feel alienated. And he says that they're scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. What do all those places have in common? We believe that Peter, as he's writing this letter, he, he mentions all those by name because that's probably the route that his letter was going to take. That's how they got the word out. They would send a messenger with this letter to those cities. 
And all of those cities were under Roman rule. And so we know that for the most part, these were probably newly converted Christians. And many of them were probably Gentiles. And so if you think about it, they're people who were going about their life in the Roman world, just doing their thing, and they hear this gospel, this good news. And through the work of the Spirit, their hearts ignite, and they, everything in their life at that moment changes. And before you know it, there are people living in the Roman world, and yet they identify themselves with a crucified carpenter from Nazareth who rose from the dead. Now, that was a hard thing for Jews, right? That was a hard thing for Jews. I mean, Paul says that this was a stumbling block for Jews, that Jesus was a crucified Messiah. I mean, how much more difficult was it for Gentiles who were living in the Roman world? They almost immediately probably felt in the place where they resided like aliens. The people misunderstood them and looked at them and thought, what are these people who are following this Jesus, this Christ? Felt like outsiders. But Peter's writing to these new Christians. This is why he's writing to them, because Peter knows what this is like. And Peter's writing to them this letter that is incredibly encouraging about their lives right where they currently are. Peter doesn't write to them and say, it's going to be weird for a little while, but just hold on because glory's coming. Peter writes to them and is, is reminding them that what is true about them right now cannot be altered or changed by anything that is going on around them, that they are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And what Peter, well, Peter wants to root that in their heads, and he wants to get that through to them because Peter, just like he was sent out from Jesus to go and feed the sheep, he's now writing to this young church, and he's realizing these are the ones who are witnessing to the resurrected Jesus in the midst of the world. So I have to encourage them and remind them of who they actually are because they're going to quickly get defensive and scared, and they're going to start turning to anything they possibly can to root their identity in. So he tells them what's true about them. And what he encourages them, the reason I included this last little fragment of a verse at the very end of his letter, what he has encouraged, he said, this, what I've I've written to you, exhorting you to, to, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm. What Peter wants is them to, to love grace, to live by grace, to stand firm in grace, to be identified by grace, that their life is a life that is marked by grace. He does not want them to forget that. And so he begins to pound it into their head because Peter knows that the only way that they're going to live redemptively in the culture and in the world around them that is quickly rising in opposition is that they are standing firm in nothing else grace. And so this morning, as we kind of think about the introduction, these are just the first few verses. They're already packed in this, in this letter. When I ask this question, what does it look like to stand firm in grace? 
Because it sounds, in, in our, maybe not to our ears, because maybe our ears are pretty churched, but I imagine to their ears it sounds pretty foreign to be able to stand solidly in something like grace. What does that look like? And I just want to point out two things this morning, that standing firm in grace means lowering our own defense and admitting our own weakness. And standing firm in grace means embracing who we now are in Jesus. Standing firm in grace means lowering our defenses. This is what he's writing to tell them, this little phrase, stand firm in grace. In this letter, he's teaching them who by nature are, are aliens, who, who could live very defensive, isolated, separated kind of lives, what it looks like to live by grace. What does that look like? To answer that question, I want to I remember Peter for a minute. All right, think about Peter just for a minute and think about what his life was like. He was a, he was a fisherman. He was probably, um, you know, middle to lower middle class. He was called by Jesus to come and follow Jesus. And we know some things about him. We know there's numerous instances where we see he's got a pretty quick temper, um, that he's pretty prideful. But I think the thing, and, and underneath those things, I think this is a, those are symptoms of the, the thing that stands out most to me about Peter, is that Peter had a really hard time accepting grace. You think about that for a minute. Peter, because we think about grace and we think, well, grace is, is beautiful. I love the idea of grace. But grace is offensive, right? Because grace means that we need grace. And it's hard for us to admit that. And so for Peter, that was a really hard thing for him to admit. It means accepting our weakness and admitting our failure daily. And it's sort of ironic in Christianity that in order to find solid ground to stand on, we first have to let go of any hope of standing firm in ourselves. So standing firm in grace means living within this community of individuals who do not base their identity They don't base their identity on worldly status. That's weird, and that's foreign. We live in a community that does not base our identity on worldly status, on how rich we are, how poor we are, what color our skin is, how beautiful we are, how smart we are, how successful we are. We don't base our identity on any of those things. We base our identity on the fact that we have been found by grace, that we reside in grace, we stand in grace. So Peter is one who's had to learn that the the hard way. And the reason he's stressing this, he wants this to be so important, is because he knows when we don't stand firm in grace, um, when we feel opposition, when we feel like our world is kind of spinning, what happens is we resort to what I call our default mode. And what is our default mode? Our default mode is just anything else that we can grasp onto. (laughs) Anything else that we think that we can stand firm in, we will run for it, right? And so you think about, you know, back to Peter, Peter's default mode. I, I I see a couple of them that were really glaring that Peter, when he felt threatened, 
he would run to his own strengths. I mean, he ran to assert his own authority, that he would kind of draw attention to himself and proclaim how bold he was and how strong he was and how courageous he was. Or later on in the New Testament, what we see in in Galatians, particularly when, when Peter feels this way, he ran back to the old Jewish regulations. I mean, it's part of what Paul writes the whole letter about is that he had to go and confront Peter to his face because Peter would stop eating with Gentiles because he was scared. He was frightened. He didn't want to stand firm in grace. He would run back to the thing that that he felt safe in, and he, he was tempted by his default mode. He's quick to turn from grace because he wanted to be able to point to something that made him feel like he could control it and that he was in charge of it. So what are our default modes? I mean, we all have them. I mean, these are just basically sinful patterns that we kind of run back to in our own lives. And I think that for many of us as Christians, maybe it's helpful to think about it in in that kind of terminology of a default mode is the thing that I quickly jump back to, that I grasp onto in order to find something to stand on. And so we might be operating in a kind of default mode mindset like 90% of the time and it's so comfortable for us and it's so safe for us that we might not even realize it. So what are, maybe what are our default, what am I talking about? I'll pick on myself um, to give you an example. I have many, many default modes. I have many, many things that I want to run to to stand firm in besides grace. And so one of the ones that I think is maybe easy, easiest to explain in the few minutes that we have together without going into a long counseling session with you is that like when, when I feel out of control, one of my default modes is, is going to want to latch on to whatever I can that makes it look like I am in control. And basically, what is that? I, I want to make it look like and appear to the world that I'm okay that I've got things together, that I've got it under control. And so if I feel like my life is spinning out of control, if I feel like I'm under um, enormous pressure or that I might be exposed in my weakness and in my failure, my default mode is is to pour all my energy into things that make me appear to have control, to be okay. So instead of allowing those things to come to the surface, allowing, um, people to see them, confessing and bringing them to Jesus and finding um, life in repentance, my default mode is, to, is the first thing that I, I often want to do is run from that. And I want to find a way that I can handle it myself. And it's a fearful, it's a, it's a fearful reaction to the world. You see, this is what Peter's talking about through this whole letter. How do you react to the world? Well, my default mode is to react to the world by, through fear of what others might do or say or think about me if I feel like I'm spiraling out of control. That's not a firm place to stand, I'll tell you, okay? If you can relate to that at all, don't stand there. It's not, this is what Peter is getting at. I want you to stand firm in grace. It doesn't, that doesn't bring peace and it doesn't bring security. Why? Because it's still in your hands and it's up to you. It's not a firm place to stand. But what am I doing when I resort to my default mode? Well, frankly, I'm denying the gospel. 
I'm denying with my life the good news of Jesus because I'm trying to assert my authority over my existence. I'm trying to show people that I'm not weak when I really am. That I'm putting my hope in my ability to rectify a situation over and above putting my hope in Jesus. And you can see how this can become just sort of a way that we do life without even thinking about it. This is why I call it a default mode. That we can proclaim, I'm following Jesus, and that everything in our life might be actually resisting grace. Pushing against grace, running away from grace. Instead of following the way of Jesus to to find firm ground, really what um, my example is doing is just following the path of the world. It's appeasing the people around you. And I want to ask you the same question to think about that. Is it, is it possible that much of your life consists in living in a default mode that is just a thinly veiled attempt to say that you do not need grace? I'll ask that again. Is it possible? Entertain the possibility with me that much of your life is actually lived in a default mode that is just a thinly veiled attempt to say, to run away and to resist grace. That maybe we've hidden our sins so well because we don't actually want to, as we talked about last week, we don't actually want to face Jesus. Maybe that we're killing ourselves in school and we're killing ourselves at work because good grades or a financially stable life are the only thing that make us feel worth anything. Maybe our humor or our personality, or maybe even our silence is just a way of constructing an identity that it seems safe? Is it possible that we're seeking to stand firm in almost anything but grace? So Peter is writing to a group of people, and obviously in that group there's individuals, and I'm addressing you as individuals, but think about this. I think that what Peter really is most concerned about is collectively the church, What does it look like for the church to stand firm in grace and for the church not to slip into a default mode? Because as a body, as a body of Christ, they're going to feel threatened and defensive. And they're going to want to root their identity collectively in something else. Now, how does that happen? I'll just give you a really quick example. The last 30 years of American evangelicalism has felt, the church in America has felt defensive and threatened. And the way that its default mode has been to hitch itself to political power. It doesn't work. It's adopting the way of the world instead of learning what it means to stand firm in grace. The first step in standing firm in grace is admitting that you do not have a leg left to stand on. That's a good news. It's good news when you get to that point in your life because it means coming to Jesus. It's also good news every moment of the day when you get to that point because you actually find solid ground when you start to admit, I don't have a leg left to stand on. But secondly, that was the depressing part. Secondly, the hopeful part is that standing firm in grace means embracing who we now are in Jesus. 
It means lowering our defenses and admitting our weaknesses so that we might embrace our true identity, which is in Christ and in Christ alone and in nothing else. This is what the gospel is inviting us to, and it's totally different. This is what Paul talks about when he says, it is now for freedom that you have been set free so that you do not have to fear the world and what the world thinks of you and what the world says about you. Because you have a new identity, that your life is now hidden in Christ. And it's no longer you who live, but it's he who lives in you. And Peter's like, I want you to see that. I don't want you to miss it because it's glorious. And he's saying, from experience, I've had to learn this the hard way. I've had to go back to my default mode over and over again and had to repent and come back and find my life and find firm ground in the grace of Jesus. And he's saying... You're, you're, you know, you're going through tough things. They're, they are going, we'll talk about this in later weeks, but they're going to go through some very, very tough things as a church. And he's saying, you know, being a fake is not going to help that. Being a legalist isn't going to help that. Even simply working harder is not going to help that. You need a new identity. And you need to root yourself in that identity. This is why Peter immediately, at the very beginning of the letter, this is why I love even his introduction. It's like at the very beginning of the letter, he reminds them and he reminds us who we are. This is who you are. He does it immediately within the first sentence. He knows that nothing will make us forget our identity more quickly than hardship, our loneliness, our failure, our opposition, our persecution, both individually and also corporately, when we face those things, difficult circumstances in our life, the first thing that we often do is we start to slip into that default mode. And so he reminds us of the reality of who we now are in Christ, the ultimate identity that we can securely stand on. And he says three things, and I'll end with these. He says that we have been chosen, that we have been sanctified, and we have been sprinkled. Chosen, sanctified and sprinkled. You see, the first thing that he uses to secure our identity and grace is the fact that you, if you are in Christ, that you have been chosen by God the Father. He calls them elect exiles. And Peter wants you to know that your relationship with God, this is what he starts with. Your relationship with God, you know what it is? It's a miracle of grace. It is a miracle of grace. It is not rooted in anything that you have done or merited or accomplished. It's simply because you were an enemy and he found you and he loved you. And the type of love all of us want is an unconditional love. And this is what he's saying it is. We don't want somebody to love, we don't want somebody to love us because, well, we, maybe we do. Because we're like beautiful or we're smart or we're funny Because what we know is that that's not very stable ground because at any minute those things can change and they do change and they're temporal. His love is not based on those things. He loves you because he loves you. It's unconditional. You are loved because he's chosen to love you. And if you believe in Jesus now, it is because he has pursued you from before the foundation of the world. And Peter says, how about you root your identity in that? How about you root your identity? This is what it looks like to stand firm in grace. That the world may say you're nothing. You might be nothing in the world. Your status might be nothing in the world. But listen, Peter lays out in his intro the fact that each person of the Trinity, 
They're all used there. We're intimately involved in bringing you into the kingdom of heaven. Each person of the Trinity was intimately involved in pursuing you and finding you and taking out your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh and sprinkling you with the blood of Jesus so that you might belong to God forever. He wants you to root your identity in that. Who cares what the world says about you? Stand firm in grace. But he also says you've been, you've been chosen with a purpose, that you've been sanctified. And he says you were sanctified by the Spirit for obedience. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the word sanctified or sanctification. We, we oftentimes use that word, and the Bible uses that word, to talk about the process by which um, we are conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. But Peter's not using it in that way. He's using it in a different way. He's basically saying that you have, if you lived during this time, you would have known that there were things that were set apart, they were sanctified, they were set apart for a holy use. So a priest in a temple would have instruments that he used that were sanctified because they were set apart, not for common use or daily use, they were set apart for holy use. And in the same way, Peter says that you have been sanctified, you've been set apart for a holy purpose. For obedience to Jesus as, a, as an instrument of redemption in the world. You've been chosen for a, a mission. To be freed by grace to the extent that you might be freed to become a, a minister of reconciliation. Both individually and collectively. But then finally he seals it with this. He says that you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. You've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. It's strange imagery. It's rooted in the passage that Helen read to us earlier in Exodus 24 when all the people come out of slavery, that God brings them out of slavery, and they hear the heart of God, his law. And they say, we're able to do that. And Moses is like, no, you're not. And God knows that they're not. And so he immediately covers them with his blood. That he says, for breaking my law, blood must be shed. And so he already tells them right there at that point, I will bear the blow and the punishment for what you deserve. And Peter says, you too have been sprinkled with the spotless blood of the lamb so that you are now clean. He's saying in that my love for you is secure because it is costly to me. Love for you is a guaranteed in the sprinkling of blood. So as we start this study, as we think about this letter, as we think about what it means to be chosen and sanctified and sprinkled, let's think about that question of what what is our identity actually rooted in? What is our default mode that's already maybe wearing us out because we're working so hard to maintain it? And what does it look like for us individually and collectively to stand firm in the grace that Jesus has given to us? You see, the goal of this for Peter, the goal of this is that they then will look at a world around them that might be threatening them, um, may not understand them, and their response is not to adopt the same 
practices as the world, but their response is to respond to them in love and grace the way that Jesus has responded to them. So he's prepping them for that. And that's what we're going to see as we go throughout this letter. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, even as we hear those words, uh, stand to stand firm in grace, they might sound foreign to us because we might feel even this morning really wobbly, um, that we might feel this morning um, really tired of, of trying to prove ourselves to maybe you and to the world. And so I pray now as we come to this table um, that we would taste and see the grace of Jesus that is now given to us. We ask this in his name. Amen.